Okay, find the right place here. There we go. <laughs> we got a little bit of a skewed group here today. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> welcome everybody. Thank you for coming back if you uh, were here last week, and thank you for coming if you weren't. Um, we are talking about family worship, and uh, this is the second message. The first week, last week, was more of the foundations. It was the why, and this week, uh, we're going to get more into the what and the how. Um, now, as I mentioned last week, this is a topical thing, uh, but we're going to try to keep it expositional and really look at the Word of God and not um, the opinions and thoughts of men. So um, I pray that the Lord will bless it for you and for your families. Uh, last week, we looked at Psalm 78, which has to do a lot with the Father's responsibility and the command to lead your family in worship to the Lord, and specifically in the understanding of his word. And then we looked at Psalm 128, which goes over the blessings of a family that is in order under the fear of the Lord. And this week, uh, our first passage is going to be Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4. As Sinclair Ferguson said, only... In obedience, can we discover the great joy of the will of God? So as you're turning there, this is one of the key passages on family life in the entire Bible. And there is a huge amount of uh, wonderful teaching and wonderful knowledge in here. Um, but we're going to try to just kind of look through it specifically for family worship uh, things, But let's read Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's tremendous, tremendous teaching here that is worthy of study, and this might actually be a good passage to look at in your family worship time. Just a thought. This is a unique passage because it's one of the few places where we see Christ's relationship not to individuals, not to believers, but to the church as a whole. And that is the context for talking about marriage. Now, we're going to narrow down our observations, as I said, to family worship. But the foundation of family worship, from the point of practice, is having a home in order. A family that is in order. And this passage here mirrors Psalm 128 in terms of that, but with more clarity. Because we see two things here that they didn't know about when Psalm 128 was written, which are the church and the coming of Jesus Christ. So we see this pattern that God is the head of the family. He is the head of the husband. The husband is the head of the wife, and the parents are the head of the children. So we see God, husband, wife, child. Now we also see here that Christ is the head of the church, and that is the model for a husband's headship. The substance of marriage is based on how Christ loves the church and how this church responds to Jesus Christ. We see here that Jesus Christ is the head of all. He is the head of everything. And this is the proper order of not just authority, but also responsibility. Jesus Christ has authority over the church because Jesus Christ is responsible for the salvation of the church. We see Christ also as the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. So we see here that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he is responsible for her justification and her sanctification and ultimately he will be responsible for her glorification. In Psalm 128, we see the blessings of a family that is in order under Jesus Christ. The headship of the husband is a headship of responsibility and service, not just a headship of authority. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Headship is never about selfish rule. There is no excuse for abuse or bullying. There is never a command given to a man about his wife submitting. This does not exist in the Bible. The command to submit is given to the wife. It is not given concerning the wife to the man. The man is to sacrifice for her needs. He is to give himself up for her. This doesn't mean he sacrifices for all of her wants and gives her whatever she desires. It means that he meets her needs, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. He leads her in truth for her holiness. Now, as I mentioned, women are the ones who are told to submit and respect their husband. And when they do this, they are respecting and submitting to Christ. 
as to Christ and ultimately to Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission to your husband is obedience to God. Now, there's a few things we have to say about this submission. This, of course, is submission in all things that are not sinful. If your husband is trying to lead you to sin or tell you to submit sin, you should not submit to this. And the other thing is that if your husband is abusing you sexually, physically, emotionally, come, talk to the elders. This is not okay. You do not need to submit to abuse. The other thing we see here is that neither command, the command to the husband <coughs> or to the wife, is conditional. There is nothing in these passages that gives you the ability to say, I would submit if he would only do this. Or I would love her if only she would do this. I would love her if she had submitted to me and give myself up for her. Or I would submit if he loved me. There is nothing in this passage that says that. They are clear, simple commands. Husbands are to love their wives, even if their wife is contentious and manipulative. Wives are to submit to their husbands, even if their husband is selfish and unreasonable. These are the simple, clear commands of God. But just because they are simple and clear does not mean they are easy. The only way this is possible is in the power of the Spirit. Next, we see that children are to obey their parents, and this obedience is also to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, we shift gears here a little bit from talking to the husband and the wife as two people coming together to talking about the husband and wife as mother and father together. You are to honor your father and your mother. Now, parents who are living out God's commands in their marriage, who are living in a godly relationship, will not be divided in their relationship to their children. They will be unified. And in this situation where you have a godly marriage, the father and mother are an equal authority over the children. They are unified. The husband is the head of the wife. But the word of the one is the same as the word of the other as far as the children are concerned. Once again, this is simple, but it's not easy. This is difficult for a husband and wife to live in this unity and be united towards their children, and it is difficult for children to submit. But children who live in submission are blessed. Now, everything we've looked at so far is very general. This is about attitudes and relationships. But if we look again at our passage, we see that there are two specific activities that are given, and they're related, but they're not quite the same. The first is for husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so we see here that the specific way that men are directed to love their wives is by washing them with water, or of water, with the word. We are to love our wives according to and with the word of the Lord. Now there's two words, two Greek words that were used concerning the word of the Lord in the New Testament. One is logos, 
which is the whole counsel of God. This is what we think of. Logos would be all of God's commands, all of God's laws, all of the things in the Bible, the whole counsel of God. But there's a second one, which is rhema, and that's the word used here. And rhema is a specific word. It's a word fitly spoken for a specific time and place. Now, interestingly, this is also the same word used in Ephesians 6, 17 for the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And it's also the word used by the angel in response to Mary when she is told that she is going to be the mother of Jesus in Luke one thirty seven. In the literal Greek there reads, no word, Rima, of God can fail. The word of God cannot fail. So this is a specific word applied to a specific area of life. It's not the whole counsel of God, but it is God's word applied to life. And this is the definition of wisdom. Now, it also assumes a basic understanding and knowledge of the whole counsel of God. And a husband and a wife who are living together in a godly relationship will be looking at the whole counsel of God individually and together. But the specific command here is to live life with your wife in light of the word of God and through and lead her through the word of God. The leadership of a man for his wife should be completely based on the word of God. And then the second command is similar, but not quite the same. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So real quickly, let's look at this idea of not angering your children. And there are three basic ways that people do this. One is by being legalistic. Making your acceptance of your children based on their performance. Remember, the law condemns. If you want to anger your children, make unreasonable demands of them. The second one is to be indulgent and not put limits on their sin. Not make any real demands of them. Make emotions more important than truth in your relationship. This does not create boundaries that your children can live by and is going to make either acceptance or anger their gauge for their behavior as opposed to the word of God. And the third one is just pure negligence. Selfishly pursuing your own interests in treating children either as pests or minions. Something that's there to serve you. Any of these three things are the root of, of all of the things that we anger our children with. And all three of them are a lack of real love. So how do we show them true love? Well, we give them what they truly need which is to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the discipline and instruction, the knowledge and conformity to God's word, to train them for life using the word of God. And the first thing that this requires is the gospel. Your children do not come saved because you are saved. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God, and every generation must be taught the word of the Lord. And this brings us to our second passage, which is one of the most quoted scriptures about family worship. It's called the Shema of Israel. And it's based on the, the Hebrew word Shema, which 
can be alternately interpreted as hear, listen, or obey. And it's basically the idea of listening with an imperative to do what you hear. It's like when your mom says to you, you better listen up, right? You know that what's coming after that is something that you better obey, not just hear with your ears, right? And that's, that's the word. This word is used twice here, and it's used in some 88 verses in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a very important word. Listen and obey the word of God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and commands which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this entire passage is centered on verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, as we looked at last week, this is the passage that Jesus quoted in answer to the question, what is the first and greatest commandment? And this is what we were looking at with the idea of priority. Remember, priority is singular. There can be one first thing. And this is the priority in the believer's life and in the believer's home. Is God your first love? This is the question. Your job will not love you back, no matter how much you love it. It will take from you and take from you. Your real job is to love God, to love your wife, and to teach your children. Is leisure devouring your time? Stop devoting yourself to watching sweaty men chase balls around on a field. Stop chasing the American dreams of sitting on a boat and getting drunk, or driving fast cars, or of sitting in a bigger house watching sweaty men on a bigger TV chase balls around a field. Turn off the Xbox before you're an ex-husband and answer the real call of duty. (laughs) You got that, huh? (laughs) Worship with your family. Worship the Lord because he is worthy. Stop wasting your time on pinsty twit face gram and all of the other channels of unsocial media that are driven by self-aggrandizement, 
covetousness, gossip, and slander. Stop wasting time wallowing in discontentment over relationships or over your status in life in whatever way. Stop looking to your husbands and kids to fulfill your heart's desires and give you meaning in life. Look to the Lord. Love him with all of your heart. Respect your husband. Teach your children. This is the foundation of family worship, the love of God because he is worthy. And worship is centered around God's word, the revelation of who he is and what he does. The order of teaching, God reveals his word. Yes, there are professional ministers who deliver that word to us. And then believers share the word with their families and with each other. We see this very clearly in this passage. Moses delivered the word of God to the people. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you. But he did this with a purpose. The purpose wasn't so that they would keep coming back to Moses. It says, he charged the fathers with teaching their children. You shall teach them, meaning the statutes, judgments, and commandments that God delivered to Moses, diligently to your sons. Sunday sermons are not enough. Husbands must lead their wives in the truth, and parents must diligently teach the word to their children. The preacher is not the head of your household. We also see that knowledge alone is not enough. These words must govern our will and affections, our desires. It says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, not just in your mind, not just in your ears, on your hearts. The word of God should govern our thoughts and our actions. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. They should be active in our private lives and in our public lives. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, your inner life, and on your gates, the thing that faces out to the world. They should be involved in every part of your life at all times. When you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And this brings us to the nuts and bolts of family worship. What should we do and how should we do it? And as we consider what do we mean by the practical side, consider what one commentator says about this passage. Note that Moses gives them moral instructions and not military instructions to enable them to conquer the evil Canaanites. The practical side of this is moral and spiritual. It's the word of God. Now, our family worship consists of three main things. The first one, as we said, is the word of God. It should be centered around that. Everything else should center around that. The second is prayer. Praying to God, who has revealed himself to us in his word. And the third, and this is kind of the icing on the cake in a lot of ways, is singing. It's music. We should honor God and glorify him with music. Now, one of the wonderful things is that there is tremendous freedom in the how. 
There's no hard and fast rules about when, where, and how long, and all of those kinds of things. But let me give you some guidelines. Don't try to make it into a church service. Don't make a big production. This is an intimate time together as a family. Keep your exposition simple. Sing fun songs, especially with little children. Keep your prayers short and to the point. Don't expect it to happen by itself. Do make a basic plan. Even though you don't have to do a big production, a little mini church service, make a plan for what you're going to do. And use resources. Don't feel like you have to come up with all of this stuff yourself. And don't try to make it up new every time. Routine is your friend when it comes to this. And as part of making that plan, set aside a specific time. Now this passage gives us four times, right, which are kind of a comprehensive description of all of our life. But at the same time, any one of those four particular times is a great time to practice family worship. When you're sitting in your house, this is meal times, right? When you're sitting around a meal, we, um, we don't do this, but we have been to several uh, houses where the family sings a hymn before you eat, and it's, it was delightful, right? Um, first thing in the morning, when you, li- when you rise up, right? Do something in the morning to glorify God together as a family if you can, or before bedtime, in the evening, when you lie down. This is when we do it. We do it after dinner and before bed, and that's what works really well for us. That doesn't mean that's what you have to do. Do what works in your schedule and for your family, right? Now let's look at um, how to implement some of these three different things. Uh, The word in family worship. Keep the Bible central. Now this can be very simple. Read a passage and talk about it. It doesn't have to be a long passage, right? It can be one verse. It can be several verses. It can be a paragraph. Whatever works. Focus on God who he is and what he's done, right? This is not a seminary course. This is not a technical commentary on the Bible. This is devotional. This is worshiping God. Look at who he is and what he's done. Ask questions about the passage. If you're the father, you're the head, you're the leader, but that doesn't mean you have to do everything, right? That doesn't mean you are micromanaging family worship, right? It just means that you're setting the tone. You're leading it. So ask questions, Get comments, get feedback. You'll be amazed at some of the questions your children have. Some of them will be so off the wall, you'll say, where did that come from? And other times, they'll ask questions and you'll say, that's an amazing insight. I never thought of that. Let's look at that, right? Get a good devotional commentary. Not a technical commentary, right? Not not a really in-depth academic commentary, but a good devotional commentary that is expositional and goes through and looks at the passage and does basic explanation of it. Take turns reading. Get everybody involved. One of the really fun things I discovered, or one of the the fun tips when I was preparing for this was the idea of if you have children who can't read yet, sit them in your lap, whisper the verse in their ear, and have them say it out loud. It's a great way to get them involved, and it's really fun as a family. But take turns. Go around the room, and everybody take turns reading part of the passage. This is a big one. Evangelize your kids. Focus on the gospel. Now, this can be done no matter what part of the Bible you're in, no matter what passage you're looking at. 
right? God hands you a viper and a diaper, and the only thing they can do themselves is poop their pants, and they make that your problem. They are not saved, right? Your kids are not saved just because they're in your family. You need to evangelize them. Remember, if they're not saved, they're actually not truly worshiping God either, right? You are leading them in how to think about God. You are shaping their thinking and their approach to life with Scripture. You're tilling the soil and you're sowing the seed. The harvest is up to the Lord. He is the one who saves. With small children, start small. Keep it short. Keep it simple. But also remember, children's brains are primed to learn. I have a terrible time memorizing. Hannah can memorize anything in two times. Get your kids memorizing scripture. If they can memorize stupid nursery rhymes and silly songs, they can memorize scripture in hymns, right? It took us four kids to realize this. <laughs> but, but they are primed to memorize. So start them memorizing. Um, don't, be, don't be afraid of using Bible storybooks either. Get a good Bible storybook. It, it is basically um, a child-level commentary on the Bible. So get a good one and, and use it. And that brings us to another question, which is, should family worship be fun or not fun? And I've heard arguments on both sides. Vodi Bakum says, I don't care about fun. I care about your soul, right? And other people say, keep it fun because they learn better. So once again, there's tremendous freedom. Do what works for you and for your family. How about prayer and family worship? Well, the first thing is, if we're centered on the word of God, pray about what you've read and glorify God for his revealed word. And also, you can use patterns to pray. There are many good patterns for prayer. The Lord's Prayer is an excellent pattern to follow, right? And it starts out with the glory of God's name. So you can tie what you were just reading directly into that pattern for prayer. Pray for specific things. And this brings up another point. Men, you're the leader, but your wife is your helpmeet. She is there to help you. And this was actually Jenny's idea. We, we have a prayer, a weekly prayer list that we go through, and there are specific things for each day. So there's things like um, praying for needs in the church, praying for our missionaries, praying for our family needs personally, praying for our extended family, right? So we go through different days. Um, but pray for specific things and get your children used to the idea of going to the Lord for these needs. And thank God for his faithfulness to your family specifically, the particular things that God has blessed you with in the last week or in the last um, however long, right? And this comes back to the same idea of should we make it fun or not fun? Should everybody pray? If you have unbelieving children, should you require them to pray? And I've heard arguments on both sides. Once again, take this before the Lord and, and do what works for your family. Um, we have chosen to have everybody in our family pray because whether you're a believer or not, the Lord is the Lord. And so that's the path we've taken. But that's, that's an area of ambiguity that you can choose how you're going to approach it. Singing in family worship. 
Martin Luther says, he who does not find the gift and perfect wisdom of God in his wonderful work of music is truly a clod and not worthy to be considered a man. Now, praise the Lord, these are the words of Martin Luther and not the scripture, (laughs) because sometimes I definitely fall into this category. I'm not particularly musical, right? Um, But you don't have to be a skilled musician. That's not the point. The point is that we are glorifying God with the words, with the songs of our mouth. Have you ever stopped to think that Christians are the only ones who truly sing? No other group of people in the world really sings. Individuals here and there sing. And I've heard Muslims in Senegal chant themselves into a trance. It was not singing. It's not what we do. We are the only group of people in the world sings together as a group regularly. What a blessing. Sing songs that are theologically rich, that reinforce the things that you're reading in God's word. You can even sing scripture. There are many scriptures that have been put to song. I mentioned earlier, I'm terrible at memorizing, but singing scripture is a great way to memorize. This is one of the few scriptures I have memorized. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He who loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. So I, 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 I learned that as a child, and it's still with me, right? I don't know if I've memorized a verse since then. I, like I said, I have a terrible time. Use YouTube sing-alongs. This is a great time to go to that on social media, right? You can find any hymn you want as a sing-along on YouTube, right? Get the words, print them out, and sing along if you're not musical. Have your kids type out word sheets to sing from. And this can also double as school if you're homeschooling, so little tip there. Elizabeth Elliot says that she knew hundreds of hymns by the time she grew up, by the time she was an adult and moved out of her house from family worship. What we sing, we memorize. And singing is the atmosphere of heaven. Singing on earth is the foretaste of the glory to come. Now, real quickly, let's look at some supplements to family worship. Devotionals are not the word of God. Even a really good devotional like Spurgeon's Morning and Evening is not a substitute for the Word of God. It can be used as a supplement, but not as the substance. I would also say that catechisms fall into this. Catechisms are amazing teaching tools. It's not something we've done. I know that the Jones family, you're doing it. I know others who have done it. But basically, a catechism is a short-form systematic theology course in question-and-answer form. If you choose a catechism, choose one that's age-appropriate and choose one that includes the Bible references so that you're not just reading a list of questions and answers, but you're actually looking at what the Bible has to say about that and why that's the answer to the question. There are a lot of activities that you can do as supplemental. Um, Once again, uh, Jenny started this. We do a Thanksgiving book in our family. And every year we go through and we do a page. Everybody in the family does a page of what they were thankful for that year that God did for our family, right? Some people act out Bible stories, especially with younger children, or do Bible story charades, then you have to guess. Um, And then there's also a lot of other books that are really 
useful as supplements. Biographies of godly people. Or um, books like Pilgrim's Progress, right? Once again, not a substitute for scripture, but a great supplement to family worship. Lamplighter books are, we've been tremendously blessed by the lamplighters. These are all fictions that are about people living out their faith. And then there's also theological and practical books like A.W. Pink's Attributes of God. Great book to go through as a family. Um, I, Jenny and I have gone through it individually, but it, you know, there again, that's an age-appropriate thing. That, um, definitely a higher level of understanding. Or even practical books like Vody Bachman's Family Driven Faith right, that are more about how to live out the Christian life. And I want to just give you a quick example from our family this week by way of encouragement. So I come home, and I'm tired, and my mind's not working well. And we come to Isaiah 21, 11 through 17. And we read this out loud. The oracle concerning Duma, one keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravan of Dedanites. Bring water to meet the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. Meet with bread the one who has fled, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn swords, and from the bent bow, and from the heaviness of battle. For thus says the Lord to me, in a year as a hired man would count it, all the glory of Kedar will end. And the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. And tired Tom says to his children and wife, I have no idea what this means. (laughs) Not one of the more exciting passages of Isaiah just to read on its own. So here again, use resources. MacArthur notes to the rescue. Apparently, Edom asked Isaiah how long the Assyrians were going to be a problem, and God said, I'm doing away with Assyria, but don't get too comfortable because Babylon's coming. Great history lesson. Now what? We come to the last verse. And remember, this is family worship. This is about who God is and what he's done. And we read, For Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now we have something that we can do something with that's not just an interesting history lesson. What kind of God can tell you what's going to happen in 80 years before it happens and say it with certainty? Now we can talk about what God has done, which is predicting the future with certainty and who he is. He is sovereign. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent, right? These are things we can glorify God for. And so then we pray and we say, Lord, thank you for your scripture which reveals who you are, that you are a God who is in control of history. And your children look at you and say, Dad, you've prayed that seven times in the last week and you say, Amen, we're reading Isaiah. (laughs) Right? So this isn't a glorious thing. This is just simply being faithful. Now, we've been talking about the ideal family, and I'm going a little long, so sorry about that. But many of you are not living in this ideal family. 
Many of you are not living in this type of unity with your spouse. Many of you may have children living outside the home who are not saved. What do you do? Well, first and foremost, you pray for them. Remember, there is no shared worship with unbelievers. You can't have family worship with an unbeliever. The gospel is the first truth that you need to share. Husbands, if your wife are not seeking the Lord or if they are an unbeliever, remember that word, rima, the specific word for the specific time. God's command to you is the same. And wives, if your husband is an unbeliever or if he is not seeking the Lord, submit to him and respect him. First Peter says, be subject to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the words, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is a powerful thing. Obeying God's word has blessing. Now, if your children are grown and don't do this, these same two things, praying for them, using the word of God in a specific way. If you're living out your life as a Christian, then the decisions you make are going to be governed by God's word. Simply talk about that. James Montgomery Boyce says, children are their own people, and they have their own set of responsibilities before both God and others. If your child has abandoned the Lord and is living a worldly life, do not abandon hope. God has called many such children. Your duty is to continue to live as Christians and pray for your children regularly. The Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, how do you get started? First, seek the Lord. If you've been negligent in this, then repent. Tell the Lord, I haven't done this, and I want to do this. And then ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Think about that. He gives generously, more than you need, and without reproach. That means he's not going to say to you, it's about time. He's just going to say, here, I will give it to you. George Whitfield said, Where the heart is rightly disposed, it doth not demand any uncommon ability to discharge family worship in a decent and edifying manner. So start now. What's the one thing you can do? It might be simple. If you haven't been praying before meals, start praying for your meal. Thank God for the food and ask him to bless it. Right? Read a simple verse together. This whole thing can take five minutes. It's wonderful to keep going. Now also, don't be surprised if you encounter opposition there's been many times, my girls can tell you, there's been many times when I've literally fallen asleep between word three and four as we've been trying to do this. Don't be surprised if this tears the scabs off in your marriage, right? And brings to the surface the things that have been festering. Keep pushing. The darkness hates the light. You're bringing the light into your marriage and into your family, and the darkness is going to fight back. Don't be surprised if you can read any book in the house with complete and rapt attention. And as soon as you get out the Bible, everybody has to pee and poke their sister. Right? This is spiritual warfare. Prepare for battle. But also, with faithful practice, will come great blessing. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these beautiful truths that we can read. Lord, I pray that we would hear, that we would listen, and that we would obey. I pray that you would use this to bless our families, to conform us to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would look to you and you alone for these things, knowing that they are simple, but they are not easy. And in fact, they are impossible without your power. Lord, we desire to glorify you, glorify your name, and praise you for the things that you have done, the salvation that you have given us, and the joy that we can have in leading our families in your truth. And in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen.